Heavenly Father, we come and we seek understanding. We pray that you would give it as you gave Daniel understanding. We pray that we would be humble before you, that we would find life, and that we would respond in obedience and joy, and that you will give us strength and encouragement, and that you would direct us. Be with me. Guide my words. May your people be fed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you also to Justin for reading uh, a long text. Uh, they are getting ever so slightly shorter as time goes by. Um, next week actually is four verses shorter, I think. Uh, as I was thinking about this text, uh, there is a wonderful fairy tale written by a Scottish minister named George MacDonald. And if you haven't heard of him, uh, he lived from 1824 to 1905. Uh, he's best known probably for The Princess and the Goblin, uh, which actually some people have heard of. Most of his stuff people haven't. But they've heard of one of his protégés, uh, a gentleman named Lewis Carroll, uh, who also wrote a story about uh, people going through a looking glass. Uh, and uh, George MacDonald was very influential on just about every fantasy writer, including J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Uh, and Lewis has some high praise of his, uh, of his imagination, uh, even if he didn't like his poetry very much. Um, but he wrote a, a wonderful fairy tale called The Light Princess. And... Already in the title is a play on words, uh, and I'll explain that in a little bit and connect it. But I'm going to read you just a little bit. I know we've had a lot of stories so far, but uh, we'll have a little bit more. Uh, and what's happening in this story is you have a king and his wife, and they have a little girl, and they do not invite the king's sister to the baptism. And the king's sister is a princess and also a witch, which may explain why she wasn't invited. Uh, but she comes anyway, and she places a curse on the baby, and she deprives her of her gravity. And I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs. Her atrocious aunt had deprived the child of all her gravity. If you ask me how this was affected, I answer, in the easiest way in the world. She had only to destroy gravitation. For the princess was a philosopher and knew all the ins and outs of the laws of gravitation as well as the ins and outs of her boot lace. And being a witch as well, she could abrogate those laws in a moment or at least so clog their wheels and rust their bearings that they would not work at all. But we have more to do with what followed than how it was done. The first awkwardness that resulted from this unhappy privation was that the moment the nurse began to float the baby up and down, she flew from her arms toward the ceiling. Happily, the resistance of the air brought her ascending uh, career to a close within a foot of it. There she remained, horizontal as when she left her nurse's arms, kicking and laughing amazingly. As the story plays out, we learn that not only was this 
light princess uh, free from regular gravity. She was also free from having any gravity of emotion. She laughs when her parents weep. She finds it funny. She can't take anything seriously, and her life uh, is kind of miserable. And uh, as it plays out, she finds that if she's in water, she regains gravity of both kinds. And being a story uh, fairy tale, um, I won't spoil too much, but it ends well. Well, Belshazzar has a similar problem in that he lacks gravity. On one hand, he's not a substantial king. Uh, Instead, he has a puffed-up ego that he hasn't earned. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather uh, hasn't really done anything. Uh, In fact, uh, uh, he's not really the king. He's the king's son. He may be reigning kind of as a co-regent, but uh, he's not not the king. And on the other, he doesn't treat seriously the things that he should treat seriously. Uh, Now, that's true of his own kingdom, uh, and it's certainly true of the sacred objects from the temple of God that he treats with contempt, and therefore he treats God with contempt. Backing up a little bit, what's going on here? Since chapter 4, when we saw Nebuchadnezzar uh, come back to his senses after uh, being mad for a period of of seven times, whatever that was, uh, and glorify God, decades have passed. Uh, After Nebuchadnezzar, there is a series of short-lived kings who assassinate their successors and then get it assassinated uh, until uh, about 30 years later is about where we are. And we find that Nabopolassar is king. He's not mentioned in the text uh, because he's off on a temple restoration project. And it seems... uh, Uh, I can't be totally sure of this, but it seems that he's left his son, the crown prince, Belshazzar, in charge. Well, why tell you all of this? Uh, King Belshazzar is at home while dad is off at work. And why not throw a kegger? Why not have a big party? Hey, nobles. I'm throwing a big bash. Get the wine. Uh, And in verse 1, he's already off to a bad start. You might wonder, where is Daniel? Again, 30 years have passed. We've had a changeover of several kings. Daniel, at this point, is probably in his mid-80s. He may have just retired. Uh, We're also at the point where the 70 years of exile are almost up. And that kind of sets us up for where we are. We have King Belshazzar, Crown Prince Belshazzar, throwing a party. And the enemy is at his gates. Now there's some debate over whether he knew this or or whether the Persians were kind of coming quietly. But things are not going well 
for Babylon. And in verse 1, already things are off to the bad start of King Belshazzar uh, throwing a party with a thousand nobles. Now you might wonder who's running the kingdom. Uh, That's probably a good question. But the real problem comes uh, in verse 2 when Belshazzar calls for the goblets from the temple of God. And we find that uh, King Belshazzar remembers that his grandfather, probably, King Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered the Jews and had some really nice uh, goblets. And he said, let's drink from those. And Belshazzar thinks it's a light and amusing thing to drink from the goblets of the temple of the one true God. Behind this is the sense that uh, Belshazzar thinks that he has conquered, that his father conquered the one true God. Uh, Of course, that's not true. Now, that's sacrilege enough, but we find that more than just drink from them, they're using them to toast the pagan gods. And the true God answers. Now, on one hand, these are just cups. Uh, Much as what we have here, we believe, is just bread and wine. Uh, There's nothing really magical about the goblets from the temple. Um, It's not that they themselves are endowed with supernatural power. But they represent the holiness of God. They've been used in the worship of the one true God. Uh, And we find in Exodus 20 that God cares a great deal about worshiping him. First, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, we read in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here God says, I am a jealous God, meaning not envious, but that God cares a great deal about his own name and about his own holiness. And the next commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, Belshazzar may not be uh, exactly breaking those commands uh, in the sense of Misusing the name of the Lord, of course, he is worshiping idols uh, and they're breaking the commandment. But the real issue here, Belshazzar is making a statement, I am in control. The God of Israel, he's my party entertainment. And he is making God out to be a little something for his own entertainment. And of course, God answers. What happens in response is 
is fascinating for several reasons. Uh, one, here you have, once again, God answering a pagan king. Uh, but whereas Nebuchadnezzar received a good amount of patience and a good amount of uh, repeated uh, lessons, Belshazzar already knows these lessons. Daniel points it out to him, you knew all this. You knew the story about how your grandfather went crazy for a while and then was restored, and yet you acted this way. And Belshazzar sees a hand in verse 5, and the hand writes, uh, and apparently everyone can see it. And can't decipher it. The result is uh, that here, the person who has puffed himself up, the person who is claiming to be really king of the world, uh, is made out to be powerless. And in uh, verse 6, we find that he goes pale. His thoughts alarmed him. And then we have this phrase, his limbs gave way. Uh, there's a, a play on words throughout this chapter about uh, knots being untied. On one hand, here, this is the first time it's mentioned of, uh, in the Aramaic, the, uh, the knots of his loins were loosened. Later we're going to, uh, the mystery is the knot that is unraveled. The ESV has uh, smoothed it over. And uh, without going into it too much, uh, there's probably a puddle under the king at this point. And the one who claims to be ruler over everything is looking like an absolute fool at this point. Powerless, unable to figure out what's going on. And to make matters worse, after he offers that, you know, whoever can read this writing... Um, no one can. Verse 10, the queen comes in. Very likely the queen mother, in other words, his mom. Some think this may be Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's even possible that it's his grandmother, but um, here you have probably the king's mom coming in, in front of a thousand nobles when the king is drunk um, and not looking so great, solving his problems for him. Uh, things are looking pretty uh, bleak for Belshazzar, and uh, he is looking like the absolute fool. But she remembers that there was a man named Daniel. And Daniel, in her words, had the spirit of the holy gods of course, we know it's the one true God. And Daniel is brought in. Belshazzar treats him without respect. Uh, and he's stubborn in his arrogance. And we read that instead of approaching Daniel with respect, in Verse 13, he makes a point to point out 
Daniel, you're one of the exiles that my father conquered. Yeah. Um, I've heard you can interpret riddles. I'm curious. Can you do this for me? And still the king is, though he's soiled, though he's pale, though he's um, probably still drunk, he's talking down to Daniel. And Daniel answers. And Daniel doesn't give any of the pleasantries. You'll notice that uh, when the queen comes in in verse 10, she begins with, O king, live forever. That's what you tended to say if you wanted to keep on living in front of a king. Um, king Belshazzar offers Daniel gifts. Uh, somewhat ironically, tells him he can be third in the kingdom. Uh, By the way, why not second? Uh, I think it's because he's not the king. His father is the king. um, When I was young, I thought it's the queen. The queen doesn't have any power. Um, uh, Not in ancient times. Um, But here he's offering to Daniel these these lavish gifts. And Daniel knows very well this this appointment is going to last about six hours tops. And... uh, then you're going to be done. And so in verse 17, um, probably partly because of that, but certainly because of his disrespect to God, he just says, you can keep your gifts. Nevertheless, I'll interpret this. Well, what's going on with the writing? Um, In this case, we sort of know a little bit. uh, And it's really an amazing thing. Uh, We know the letters. There are some who suggest that what happened was God wrote in Hebrew and the people just couldn't interpret the letters, but um, what I think happened, and this is not my own idea by any means, is that what happened was God wrote and much as the Hebrew Bible uh, didn't have consonants. And if you go to Israel, they don't, or sorry, they didn't have vowels. If you go to Israel, they don't use vowels. Um, they just don't. Uh, in, in a scholar's copy of the, the Hebrew Bible, monks in the, uh, the Middle Ages decided to put in little points above and below the letters so that uh, we could figure out what was being said. But what Belshazzar sees is just a few letters. Now, if there were no spaces, that would make it even more difficult. And uh, when I was reading about this at one point, there's a whole list of things that this could have possibly meant. Um, But in order to understand it, I think it's helpful to think about how we look at license plates. And sometimes you'll see a license plate and you'll see a, a string of consonants. And this happened to me this week. Uh, there was one vowel, but not enough that I could make sense of it. Uh, I saw a license plate, and it had the letters S, T, N, D, E, F. So I'm looking at this driving, and I was driving, and I wasn't just staring at this. But in my mind, I'm thinking, what, stain defense? Um, Does this guy work for 3M? Uh, Uh... 
Is this something more uh, nefarious? Is this like a defender of Satan? Uh, is this stand the defense attorney? Is uh, sit and defend? Stand? Uh, I don't know. And then coming up to the cam, right beneath was what I needed, which was the actual word spelled out, stone deaf. Um, Okay. Um, Sometimes you get them and you're like, oh, that makes sense. This is one that, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten that. Um, And he put it um, beneath. Um, You get a similar thing. Mene, mene, tekel, parson which in English letters would be like M-N-M-N-T-K-L-P-R-S-N. No vowels. To use an analogy, you could imagine seeing written on the wall P-N-N-P-N-N-D-M-Q-T-R. And maybe you can figure that out and you might think, well, it's penny, penny, dime quarter. And it's sort of like that. What the surface reading that, that Daniel gives is mina, mina, and then changing the pronunciation a little, shekel, and then this parson is a half shekel. What, what does that mean? Uh, and as I mentioned, there are a host of other things you can do with this uh, in Aramaic, and it doesn't make sense. But Daniel comes. And what the others are powerless to do, Daniel can do because God gives him wisdom. Uh, And by the power of God, he interprets the message. And what he does is he puts in the vowels where they belong, and each word is interpreted a couple of ways. Um, And it would be sort of like this. If I said something like penny, penny, dime, quarter, uh, pe- penny, you've been penned in. Dime, you are doomed. Quarter, Qatar is going to come and quarter you. That's sort of what's going on in the, in the wording. Uh, the last little word, parson, uh, P-R-S, is even in Aramaic, uh, the letters for Persia. And so we get the interpretation from Daniel in verse 25. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, and then the Persians. And in fact, that is what's happening. Uh, Cyrus, the Persian, uh, who may very well be the same person as Darius the Mede in uh, Daniel 6, I actually think that's very likely, uh, is marching. And because of the practices of, of the Babylonian kings, because of their ruthlessness, because they had carried people uh, 
away from their homelands and resettled them, and because of their oppressiveness in making people worship the gods of the Babylonians. Cyrus was welcomed as a liberator by more than one city, including Babylon. And while this big party is going on, the Persian army is is approaching, and they come. And they have a very wonderful way of getting around the massive walls of Babylon. Babylon was not an easy city to take. And it's possible that Belshazzar knows the Persians are there. Let them try. The walls of Babylon will hold. Or it's possible that he's just arrogant and not paying attention. But the Persians wall up the Euphrates. And the Euphrates flows through Babylon under the walls. And the army just walks in. Over and over, uh, Daniel gives the message that God is in control. Uh, And I've maintained that uh, there are two big questions going on in the book of Daniel. One is, who is in control? Number two, is God still with his people? And here again, we get uh, beaten into us like a hammer. God is in control. Belshazzar has stood in front of others and said, I'm Lord of everything. Let's throw a party. Bring on the sacred goblets of Yahweh. But God has already numbered the days of Belshazzar. Everything is unfolding as God already said it would. Already we've we've seen Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Daniel's also had a vision in chapter 7, which happens in the third year of Belshazzar, of uh, these beasts and, uh, and shifting in world powers until God is in control. But back in Isaiah already, and in Habakkuk and many other places, you have statements that the Babylonians would be used for a time, but then they would be punished for their wickedness. And in Isaiah chapter 44, we get a really remarkable and specific prophecy, so specific that many scholars who don't believe in God say this couldn't possibly have been written in the time of Isaiah the prophet. It had to be written later. And this is what Isaiah 44, starting at uh, verse 24, says. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads the earth by himself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. We see that in our text who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. 
Interesting that in this text we have mention of false prophets and of diviners, mention of the messenger of God and, uh, and the predictions coming true, of a stream being made dry. And in verse 28 of Cyrus, by name, about 100, 120 years before, uh, God is in control, and he had it planned out. And we're going to continue to see in the book of Daniel that God is in control uh, all the way to the very end of history. Well, Nebuchadnezzar came to this conclusion uh, in verse 4. And if you were a Jew living in Babylon, at this point things would seem pretty bleak. Here's Belshazzar throwing a party, taking the sacred objects of the temple. Are we ever going to go home? Has Belshazzar triumphed over us the way Nebuchadnezzar has? But hope is around the corner. And it's interesting that in chapter 5, Daniel is exalted. And when the Persians show up, uh, presumably they find him dressed this way. We find in 6 verse uh, 1 and 1, 2, and 3 that Darius sets up satrapies and that over these he has high officials. And Daniel is one of those officials. Is this how Daniel got discovered? I don't know that, but it makes sense to me. And certainly in chapter 6, we see Daniel elevated, not to third in the kingdom, but to second. And Daniel goes into the lion's den. And after Daniel comes out of the lion's den, King Darius, again, who I think is probably King Cyrus, makes a decree having to do with the one true God being honored. And the very next year, the Jews go home. Now, the text doesn't knit all these things together, um, at least not explicitly, but we see the hand of God. We see that God is in control. And God is every bit as involved and every bit in control of our lives as he was in control of Daniel's life. As people who live in the modern age or postmodern age, as people who live in America, we're not entirely comfortable with this. We don't always like God being in control. We like being in control of ourselves. We like options. We like having an exit strategy. We like making our own decisions. But this is immensely comforting and immensely empowering. That just as Daniel lived in a time when God was doing something wonderful, God is at work in our day. We don't always know how. We don't always see it. Uh, but we know that the good shepherd loves his sheep and lays his life down for his sheep. We know that he leads us by quiet waters. He restores our souls. 
And even though sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. And he is taking us somewhere. We are not on a road to nowhere. One of the other good messages is that God will not put up with evil forever. And the Psalms are filled with cry of how long, how long, O Lord. And you might feel it. Those of you who deal professionally with international politics, what a crazy time we live in. Those of us who, who watch the news, what's going on? And in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. And in other ways, we wonder, what's going on? And the word of God says that things are working out according to his purpose, to the good of those who love him. That God works all things for the good of those who love him. He is in control of every detail. He is working things to our good. Not necessarily our momentary happiness. There's no promise of that. Uh, Well, why is he taking so long? Every once in a while, I come back to Second Peter 3 uh, in my preaching lately. And it's a wonderful text and a powerful one. That in Peter's day, there were people saying, God hasn't done anything yet. What makes you think he's ever going to do something? Jesus hasn't come back. He's never coming back. Otherwise, why would he take so long? Here we are 2,000 years later. Second Peter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Daniel had to wait 70 years, but he's beginning to see God do what he promised and bring the salvation of Israel and bring Judah back to her homeland. Jesus is just around the corner. You don't know how big that corner is, uh, but he's coming. Uh, Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon. And that is a massive antidote to all of our worries, all of our anxieties, all of our troubles. But as I mentioned at the beginning, we are a new creation. We don't always feel that way. I certainly don't. But God is at work in us and beyond us. And uh, Jesus is coming. And he will make all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, convince us of this truth.
Encourage us. Strengthen us. As we walk through hard times, be our hope. As we walk through joyful times, be our strength. I pray that we would learn to see the way you see, that all of history is laid out before you, and you are in control, and you will make your name great, and you will be with your people and bring salvation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.